Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Railston. I'm your host as usual and I'm joined by my good colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Tyra Marshall. We've got plenty to discuss today. Lord has been the international break. Thankfully we're coming to the end of it in this football on Saturday evening when Manchester United will play Sheffield United at Bremel Lane. But in today's podcast, we'll discuss the latest with Surgeon Ratcliffe, uh, have a bit of chat about Jadon Sancho and his ongoing situation, and we'll look ahead to the game this weekend. But first of all, gents, how are we? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good, pretty chirpy. I was a bit ill uh, early in the week on Monday. Could you tell? Was I not on form? I couldn't, no. Oh, well, I, felt, I felt like death warmed up anyways. And Tyrone, how are you? I'm good, thank you Stephen, good. I'm enjoying hearing more stories from the ongoing football feud between the Shearer and Keane of, uh, of the MEN. Well, for a bit of context for the listeners, there was a challenge on, was it one night was it Samuel, was it Tuesday night? Or Wednesday it was night? Tuesday evening, yeah. I, I, I've got no recollection of this challenge on Samuel. Yeah, it was, it was very authentic playing five-a-side in Newton Heath. Newton Heath yeah, as well, exactly. Uh, and you had a good, good shirt on as well Samuel, classic vintage top, uh, which I thought was quite nice. How much? Can I make an offer? Is that where you kicked him? I've, I've, had, it for, <laughs> I've had it for a while. I wanted this shirt. I wanted this I wonder shirt. how many people are switching off for a middle Yeah, of this. yeah. Look, <laughs> let's get straight into it. I don't want to hear about this, this tittle-tattle. Uh, Ratcliffe then, Samuel. There's obviously not been much movement since Monday. Um, we had a kind of a takeover special on Monday afternoon where we discussed his 25% offer for the club for a steak. Um, Tenog, you were just at the press conference. Tenog was asked about uh, Ratcliffe and he kind of suggested that he'd been kept in the dark by the Glazers over the process. Uh, I'm not questioning Tenog, but do you believe he was being sincere? Uh, it, wasn't a, it wouldn't be a complete surprise uh, for the Glazers to have a lack of communication, would it? I've never really got the feeling with Tenog when we speak to him that he, he lies, really. I mean, you, you couldn't say that about Solskjaer, who, who did do that, and you could tell as well he'd start fumbling over his words. Tenog is a lot more direct and you can well believe that Joel and Avram Glazer wouldn't be picking up the phone and saying listen this is the stage we're at it's it's with the lawyers now but there will be a minority stake for Minios etc it it just it it's quite telling of their ownership that I I think when you when you paint that picture it just seems unforeseeable um it's it's very difficult to to imagine it happening and when he said that today I think people take him at face value and we just we just wait for the official confirmation from the club, and when we always get these uh, these press releases that we're signed up to. Sometimes we get advance notice, um, which which is very very helpful in in journalism as well, uh, with with such you know such impactful news. But I think where you've got the stock exchange um, to take into account with this, I don't think that will be the case. But who knows when that that press release will will, will drop all that communications um, from United. We, as I said, it doesn't feel like much has, has changed since the start of the week. I think everybody, will, it's, it's probably just wise now to reserve judgment as to what the plan will be until someone actually speaks about it. But it would have been, it would have been ideal had this 25% uh, minority state been, been ratified and Ratcliffe comes out, comes over to Manchester and holds a press conference or, or speaks in a more informal setting. I, I don't know what Ineos's intentions will will be in that, on that, sorry. But it's, we're, we're still waiting. And as you said, the, the football's back this weekend. And I think we're all very grateful Thank for God. that. Yeah, indeed. I think what you're trying to say as well is, if I get the chance to play poker with Solskjaer, I should. Because he didn't have a very good. Oh, poker he wouldn't. Face, uh, did he? I don't. I don't he think he would. Well. I don't think he'd relish uh, being at the poker table. Mm. No. Uh, Tyrone. Then I mean, Samuel's just said we're not really sure when a breakthrough is going to happen. Obviously, um, it's the end of October now. November's just around the corner. January window. Uh, it's creeping in. Are we expecting? Do you think uh, a breakthrough before then? Because ideally, you'd have Ratcliffe and Ineos coming in before the January window, and it would help the transfers and the kind of the business going forward, wouldn't it? Yeah, but they shouldn't need to be signing players in January. Good football clubs don't sign players in January, so it, it really shouldn't matter, to be quite honest. What they need to do in January is offload players. They've got a 30-31 man squad, and that's seven players, probably too many. Um, that situation will be eased when Regulion goes back at the end of the season. There's a few players out of contract who might go, but the squad is way too big, and they, they do not need to be signing players in January. They shouldn't be signing players in January. Manchester United aren't going to sign anyone in January that adds any long-term value to the squad whatsoever. So I don't, 
I, you know, there's, I don't think there's a desperate rush to get this deal done. Um, I mean, you'd think it would be done by January, but then I thought 11 months out, it would be done entirely and it, it hasn't been done. So, you know, who, know, who knows how long it takes. I don't think any of us have got much uh, in the way of knowledge of the intricacies of the New York Stock Exchange and, and how long these things take to get done. But, you know, I don't think January should necessarily be a hard deadline because they really shouldn't need to be dipping into the market. And even if the season is still, you know, a middling season as this is, I don't, I don't think the January market is really going to, to change that that much. In terms of the players who could leave the club in January, then you mentioned you see seven players off the top of your heads. Is there any names that are really standing out? Because Anthony Van der Beek, yeah, Sanchez, well, <laughs> Anthony Martial's coming to the end of his contract, and the January window is going to be the last chance to get a fee. But is anyone going to be paying it? Well, no, they they could. The I mean, they could extend his contract yeah, by a year, and, and they've done that with other players in the past, low-level players. They did it with Fred last year. I think in, in regards to the whole Ineos investment and the, the January has become topical because it's when the transfer window is opened, and so it's an easy it's an easy line to crowbar into to headlines on it. And I'm not criticising um, media outlets for it because we'll have done it as well. But as Ty said, they as bad as they've been, they shouldn't be on the lookout for signings. They should be on the lookout for signings next summer. But they've got six midfielders. One's injured at the moment, but it's not believed to be long term with Casemiro. Uh, you, you look at the forward line. They've got they've got a lot of options. Uh, okay, they've had a defensive injury crisis, but I think you've got to look more to the medical department there and the fitness staff and the fitness coaches as to what the hell's going wrong there. Why is that happening? It is it's it's a vast squad, and I think I think the size of it is is okay, but it will come to a point, and I think it's a pretty much the same size that Mourinho had. Uh, in his first season and halfway through it a couple of senior players realise that they're not going to get any playing time they need to go I think the difference with this squad is that it is more youthful you've got Mainu in there who is learning his trade Ahmad who's been injured has come back from alone Mejbri has come back from alone as well the United squad under Mourinho was a lot lot more senior and also two seasons ago you had them queuing up in January to get out of the club Lingard wanted out Hen- uh, Dean Henderson wanted out Marshall got out, Van der Beek got out. I'm pretty sure I've missed off um, one, one or two others, but it, it, you got the sense at that time that it was you know, a lot of players had ended had um, entered the end game at United, and it really was much for muchness whether they went in January or whether they went in the summer. And I, I suppose in hindsight, it would have been better for them had some of those players been turfed out then because look how corrosive that environment was. And then right at the end of the window, you had the uh, Mason Greenwood uh, story and the allegations and he was arrested and Ralph Rangnick didn't hide his um, uh, his unhappiness, shall we say, that United didn't make an 11th hour move for a forward. So the, things are always subject to change. And of course, last year they had to dip into the market because they needed an extra body uh, with, with Ronaldo terminating his, his time at the club and of course when Ericsson got injured they also needed another midfielder to come in. I thought they did well in terms of the profile of player they got in, in Marcel Sabitzer so that could be the scenario where you see United go into the market but I don't think that's the time where they should be spending 50 odd million pounds on, on a player and, and also the You never get value in January do you? Well, you, that's you the thing occasionally you do I mean Liverpool have done it in the last two Januaries with uh, Cody Gakpo and, and Luis Diaz, and they are long-term forwards at the club, but Liverpool have got a much better track record of doing deals in January and them being successful, and probably the most successful of all was, was Virgil van Dijk, who came in and had a transformative effect on the club. Um, I think people obviously talk about Kansar coming to United and that sparking the, the domestic success with Premier League titles. I don't think it's a coincidence when van Dijk came in, that's when Liverpool really started to move through the gears, Champions League final, win the Champions League, win the Premier League, won a couple of cups as well, another Champions League final. So it is possible to get that player, but do you have any faith in the current United hierarchy to identify that player? No. It would be remiss not to mention Bruno Fernandes, given that he came in in January and he did have a brilliant impact in um, that season. He's been a 
been United's best player the last 10 years. So I suppose that alone is an argument to say, well, why wouldn't you? But it doesn't feel like, I think a lot more would have to go wrong for there to be a really compelling case for United to say, look, we need this player and that player um, on a permanent basis as well. We discussed the priorities for Ratcliffe coming in earlier in the week. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, but I mean, getting better at selling players has really got to be high on the agenda, doesn't it? For the new ownership, well, not the minority investment coming into the club. Because United have just been terrible at shifting Deadwood. I mean, I think we all agreed this summer they made some positive progress in shifting players and they made a good start. But by the end of the window, we're thinking, oh God, it's ended just as, as it usually does. So that really needs to change with a fresh face coming in, doesn't it? It's something that we'd like all to see. It does, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it is difficult. I think a lot of the, some of the criticism they get over selling players is, is unfair. They're, they're not a selling club. There's, there's two scenarios where Manchester United sell a player. One, they want to go to Real Madrid or Barcelona and they're world-class, think Ronaldo, for example, and they're going to get good money for him. The only other reason Man United are selling a player is because they're not good enough. You know, you look at Harry Maguire, they were never going to get a profit on Maguire anyway, and he's, he's not been good enough. Um, and, you know, Van der Beek, difficult to drum up a market for Van der Beek when he's failed at Manchester United. So a club of United size aren't going to sign him. So, you know, it's, it is difficult to sell players because the scenario in which you're selling players isn't usually conducive. I guess the, the counterpoint would be you look at Liverpool and Chelsea selling her. It's the Saudi money, that's the thing, hasn't it? In the last few months, Saudi that's changed Chelsea. that. Liverpool and, Liverpool and Manchester City sell youngsters yeah. for a fortune because they've got this, it's almost an aura that they have certainly cities and Liverpool's to agree that to a degree they've been close to a Pep Guardiola team, a Jurgen Klopp team. You know, they must have something about them. They can sprinkle a bit of that stardust on us. On us. United had it under Fergie. They don't have it now because they, they haven't got that reputation and there's not been that many players getting close to the first team. Not just really mad for, for City, but City's academy has got that reputation, which is almost enough to convince clubs. You look at the money Southampton have basically given to City for players who, who had no real first-team experience. Where, where they've probably got, got to get better is in just being ruthless in, in getting rid of players. Um, you know, Van der Beek's a, a prime example who, who was offering nothing really. And the, it, it, you know, I, I, I describe, I think the squad is, is too big, even with the youngsters in it. I mean, I did a piece today and counted 30 first-team players with Regulian. Um, you know, if, if, you, if they were all fit, you can't really plan for an injury crisis like this because it's totally unprecedented um, but you know, if they were all fit you'd have 10 players not involved on a match day who've played for the first team this season that's you know that doesn't feel sustainable in terms of keeping a, a unified dressing room and you look at City and Liverpool certainly City got a pretty small it's unique squad. how he does that, it was like 16 17 players that he really relies on Pep yeah Guardiola. yeah and obviously it's a risk but you know I, I was at a press conference the other day when he was talking about the demands on the calendar and the Club World Cup that they're in already in 2025 and it was put to him that the obvious solution is to have a bigger squad and before the question had even been finished he was going no 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 and he was basically saying how can I keep if everyone's fit how can I keep these players happy and and things like that when it's an unhappy player it spreads through the dressing room you know that's why Sancho's been basically banned from the entire first team setup because you don't want that kind of thing to to spread and, and fester um through a dressing room and, and through an environment so you know I think the squad needs trimming but there is there are obvious areas in, in which to do it um, and players who, you know, who probably should have been sold already. That's probably where they need to get better, just getting rid of those players and finding a market, even if you're making a loss on a player, just getting some, getting the best money you can for them. Whose press conferences are more enjoyable? Uh, Guardiola has a 10 on, because obviously Tyrone dips in both. Um, I don't know, there's not much Samuel really. Guardiola tends to be longer. I, I saw a clip earlier that Fred Caldera put out of, of Guardiola from today, and I think I'm, the, the memory of that is, is still amusing. What, what did he say in that? I think he went, ha ha, you are so funny. <laughs> I saw that in Sky And then his face actually. dropped. I don't know, I, I have no idea what the context <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, but yeah. it was just, it, was just it, it amused me anyway. He's, um, he's not great for the TV, he doesn't like the TV stations, I think it'd be fair to say, Guardiola. So he, <laughs> he's, uh, he's not great on telly, he doesn't, get, doesn't give them a lot. We'll leave it there anyways for part one. We'll be back in a moment for part two. Uh, Samuel, Groundhog Day. Uh, welcome back to part two of the Manchester Eyes Red podcast, I should say, uh, first. But Groundhog Day with Jaden Sancho. 
Um, with an ongoing situation. It's been, I think, eight weeks now since the, that Arsenal game. Yeah. I think it was the 3rd of September. I think it's eight weeks since he last played and seven weeks since the... Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, still banished. The situation is still ongoing. Uh, still training on his own. Uh, there's kind of no end in sight. The January window probably is that end, uh, as we'll discuss in a second. But I mean, at the press conference again today, there was a question asked about him. Um, Telag responded, everything about him has been said. And it's just been hitting the brick wall, hasn't it, in the last few weeks in press conferences when questions have been asked about Sancho. It is the question that you will get short shrift from Ten Hag on. He's, he's not even referred to him by name. And he, he must have had probably about a dozen questions, must have fielded about well, fact, a dozen questions alone in, in that first press conference back um, pre-Brighton four or five weeks ago, I'd, I'd imagine. So he's been bombarded with, with questions on Sancho over the last five weeks. I think the last time he mentioned him by name was probably when I set the ball rolling and asked him why he wasn't in the squad at Arsenal. And he said it was down to his training form. And then, of course, everything erupted. Um, it's, it, the only resolution is, is to, to get rid of him in January. And I think we've all known that for quite some time. Uh, it, I, I was quite surprised. One that United, like, with the squad photo story, one that United put out a little clip of them doing a squad photo because they've literally, I don't think United squad has posed for a squad photo in person for some like nine years. They always just, if they do one and they've not bothered with one in recent years, they just Photoshop it. And so they did that and they've put that clip out and immediately you think, well, Sancho can't be in that. I asked the question of people at United who unsurprisingly didn't want to say, managed to find out from from someone who said he, he definitely wasn't there so that in itself is a story um because they've they've not ruled out reintegration but if you're cutting him from the, the school photo i mean i, I can't remember a, it's been a on class. the naughty step hasn't he for i know exactly yeah, yeah. I, i've there was never a classmate i had who was a cut out of our um of our class photo or anything like that so it's i think it's end of days for him at united and it there's there is a little more to say on it because it's it's the story that there's always demand for because there's still not been a resolution he is still out in the cold he is an England international as well so there's that added interest from uh, from the, the press and the media in in this country of course but he he has been an irrelevance at United for five weeks as far as their form on the pitch is concerned and although they've been on a bad run, I don't think any right-minded individual has been saying, well, it would have been different if Jaden Sancho was playing because he was such a flaky performer in his first two seasons at the club. And the more you dig into it, and I, I did think it as well before they, they signed him, I, I, there were just some red flags with Sancho that I thought, I'm not necessarily sure this is the match made in heaven, is the fever enthusiasts. It's mentality, because as we've talked about, I mean, he called himself a scapegoat back then as well, is that he's actually better on the opposite side, on the left side, than he was on the right. What were those red flags that well, really stood up? Well, there, there were definitely some... There were some aspects about, about his character um, some, that... Well, not, not everyone's suited to you, represent Manchester Yeah, you United, can't... I mean, you can't... Sometimes you can't pin a name to certain things or go into to details especially on a, on a on a on a film podcast but you you try and you know, gather as much information on, on on the player as possible and i'm not saying he's the exception to the norm at united either i think there have been other players that they've signed in recent years whether it be for football or non-footballing reasons that i've just not uh, not agreed with sometimes it's worked out sometimes it hasn't worked out um but I mean, Solskjaer said himself in that in the interview he did with Andy Mitten last month. And I thought, well, what were you doing about it? When he said, like, yeah, we wanted Jaden for the right hand side, but then he comes and he wants to play on the left, and Marcus Rashford plays on the left. Like, you could have told me that before Sanchez signed for United. Anyone could have would have known that he played a hell of a lot of football for Dortmund on the left. So what the hell were the United recruitment department doing, saying? Yeah, go for him, even though he, the chances are he won't. Like, ask the question of the agent, where does he like playing? His minutes to goal ratio on the left is so much better at, the, at this time at Dortmund than it was on the right. And that's such a freely available statistic. Well, I know the, it's yeah, not everything no, you look at. No, 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 absolutely. No, that's, that, if, you're, uh, if you're a recruitment analyst at United and you flag that, 
that should make people take stock of it and think, well, is this the, the right player that we should be going for? So to a very minor extent, he has been a victim of United's patchy recruitment and the, the processes and the, the, the lack of due diligence they, they do in it. But as I said before, when you accuse your manager of lying, you've you cannot play for the club again and it was interesting ty's story in the week about his arrangements at, at carrington which obviously they they're not great but he's only got himself to blame for that and i know, you know mental health is a lot more um you know it's, it's it's a much more it's much more topical in sport as it should be and um, people have to bear that in mind but um He's, as I said, he's, he's brought this on himself. And when a player behaves like that, you can't just allow them back into the team if, if they're not apologising. The closest he's got to an apology was just deleting the post. Perfect segue then, Tyrone, on to you with your story from the week, as Samuel just suggested. Uh, his friends believe he's in the wrong. I mean, we've said it on this podcast a few times, look, even if you don't believe it, you said, just go into the office with your fingers crossed behind your back, apologise like a grown-up. And move on like a grown up with your fingers well, behind your back. Just do what you gotta do, Sancho. <laughs> you have got, yeah, just do what exactly. you gotta do. But uh, yeah, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is incredible that he's he's not apologised. And yeah, from you know, from what we hear, that his his teammates, even the closest friends, have said that while understanding maybe an element of his frustration, he was clearly in the wrong over that post, which he must know as he's deleted it. Um, and yeah, just told him to suck it up, go and apologise, but. He won't, as we say, it's, it's eight weeks now. Um, if you're being told by your teammates to go and apologise and your friends to go and apologise and you're not doing, then you've got to wonder if it's ever going to happen. And there's also the, the point now of, I mean, what, what is an apology worth eight, eight weeks down the line? It's just, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's worthless now, that, that apology. The, the moment has passed and it is, you know, it is a, a strange one. And he is just completely, like some is not on that team photo doesn't see any of his teammates at, at Carrington. He gets changed in the academy building, has to, lock, has to lock the door in the changing room of the academy building while he's getting changed on his own because there's minors there. Um, you know, it's just a, an in, incredible setup, really. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sad waste of a talent, really. You, you wonder where he goes next, and it's, it's difficult to, to see. You know, I think it's pretty clear that, that you know, you're not even going to listen to offers for him in January. I'd imagine they'll take the first one that comes, to be honest, because they're not in a great position to negotiate and they just need, they need, they need rids, don't they? Um, but it is an astonishing waste of talent to think that, you know, they signed a 73 million pound England winger at, what was he, 20, I think, when he signed? And now, as you know, I've said in the past, that 10 wingers would have to get in, would have to be injured for him to be close to that England that squad. Is. More than that now, probably 20. Um, but, you know, even when he was playing at the start of this season, he was probably a dozen down the list of England wingers that Southgate would consider. And, you know, it's as I mentioned. Um, you know, there's it, there's clearly been issues with England as well. There's reasons why Southgate just hasn't gone near him for a long time now. I don't think he's played since the, it's the Euros. Euros. Wasn't it? Or was it this well, I think he played. Count, I think he played in one of the qualifiers after that. But it's two years. And yeah, since then there's been nothing, and he's miles away from it now. And yeah, it is. You know, it is a sad waste of a talent when you think what an exciting signing it was. But I I, I just cannot see a, a way back for him now. Do you think this has had, I mean, surely it has had a little bit of impact in the dressing room the last few weeks? Because if you consider the personal relationship Sancho has, he's still got friends, he's a human. Um, they might think he's in the wrong, Rashford, etc., whoever that is. Um, but they're still going to talk to him, they're still going to have lines of communication, of course. His friends aren't just going to shut him off. Um, do you think that's affected the dressing room at all or created a little bit of unrest behind the scenes? No, because I think we'd have heard about it by now. And I know there have been some spurious... A bit of spurious chatter, I think, was it? In fact, I don't even name the radio station that came out. But there was a remarkable headline while I was off um, about how, oh, you know, the, the players, they didn't like the treatment of Ronaldo. They don't like the treatment of Sancho. I've heard from this man who knows this player. It was remarkable stuff. And it, it made a splash. you talked about the tomato face, are you? Uh, yeah, that, that would be one way of describing it. And he, 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 he used to play for, um, we well, very briefly played for Manchester as well, uh, did, did Alan Brazil. Uh, <laughs> God, so, 
but I was I was reading these quotes. I thought, my God, how's this? <laughs> you know, it, when I saw the headline, I thought, wow. And then you saw who the, the quotes were attributed to, and re- I, I realised pretty quickly it's complete nonsense. I mean, the the notion that the nice dressing room uh, were appalled by how Ronaldo was treated is is completely ludicrous. They they were appalled by how Ronaldo behaved, and and look how how they performed after after he went permanently. They went in this great long winning run. And they, they performed like they were so disappointed. If BBC, BBC's verified, you've got that BBC verified uh, channel now, if they were to do it on, on Alan Brazil's quotes, I think they would, um, they'd have a field day. So I, I don't think it's like with, with Sancho, I mean, the other interesting thing is nobody Nobody's really seen him out and about either. And normally, perhaps in a situation like that, it was quite interesting confession. I, I was watching the Colleen Rooney Disney Plus documentary <laughs> last night, but it starts with her um, avoiding a paparazzi in, in Alderley Edge. And this, and she said about how they were on the lookout for her on the day that she put her Instagram post out. They'll have been perhaps on the lookout for, for Sancho just because he's he's an exile and and a lot of newspapers would would run those pictures but nobody's really seen anything of him i think you, there's been the odd instagram post from supporters who've, who've gone to carrington he was, and, in, was he in new york a couple of weeks after well, he's in new york he got a bit of stick for that didn't he because yeah. he you know he, he accused his manager of lying and then jetted off to went off to new york and look they had their week off and he was in he was free to do that mason mount went to new york last week um because he wasn't an in it wasn't on international duty with England, but it's a bit different when you've just accused your manager of lying, then you go off on a on, on a holiday. I think people of a certain vintage will say, "Well, knuckle down, you know, do put the hard yards in." And, and don't get think training. we'd have a job if we accused our editor of lying and then well, not jetted off on a on a break would work. That's the thing. No, no, <laughs> and I think that's the last. Um, I think that's the last agency photograph that's been that's been published of him. He was at some was it a fashion show or something like that. So I, I don't think he's necessarily, I mean, he's isolated. He is literally isolated because he's training alone. But I don't think that he's, it's not like, I'm trying to think of a really ultra popular United player from yesterday. I mean, if, if Fernandez was in that situation, you would argue that would be the case. One, he's the captain. Two, I do think he does transcend the dressing room because he can speak English fluently, I think he, Spanish as well, a bit of French, like he can get on with pretty much anyone in the dressing room. And of course, there are a lot of Portuguese speakers in the in the squad as well. But with Sancho, he's always felt a bit on the margins and he's not the only player, there, there are quite a few introverts in, in that squad. Um, and also where he's not, he, he didn't start the season as a prominent player, he's not been a prominent player for United for a long time that's bound to also have an impact on the in inverted commas loss of him to the first team squad you kind of touched upon it your previous answer Ty but if you had to kind of assess his well coming up to two and a half years now at the club uh, how would you do that I mean I was personally quite excited to see him come to England with some dazzle in Germany I made the comparison with Jack Grealish that summer he was saying for 100 million and I actually felt that like United got quite good value with Sancho. Was it 72.8 was the exact figure? 9.9, yeah. Um, that's close enough, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> good, um, good memory. Yeah, but it, seemed, it did seem like good value. It represented a decent deal. His first season coincided with that train wreck of a, of a year, so you could forgive him for that. But last season, he didn't kick on. Um, it ended in the FA Cup final when he was pretty anonymous, wasn't he? And he just kind of summed up it's his dreadful. time. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, dreadful is probably a good word for it. Dreadful. Pointless. I mean, he's he contributed absolutely nothing, has he? You'd struggle to remember really a great game that he's had. Um, you know, it, just a complete write-off, a, a disastrous, disastrous move. Um, like I said, I think a lot of people were excited by it because he was young, he was exciting. He's the type of winger who you know can get fans off their seats. He he's a, he was a dribbler, likes to take people on, but he's just he's never been that that same player. We've just not seen what he did at Dortmund for United. We've never seen it. We've never come close to to seeing it. And you know, I I mean I asked Ten Hag about that in when we were on tour in the sit down and we were talking about Sancho and I I, you know, I raised the point and said he he's never looked at United the same player he is for for Dortmund. And you know I, I think Ten Hag I think kind of raised the, the standard and said it's a 
you know, it's a different, it's a different league. It's a harder league. Um, but he, he said my vision was a bit grey as well, and that there has been moments where he's looked like that. But I, I really can't recall any of. He's them. having a pop you with wearing glasses. To now, be I quite think. honest, wouldn't, I wouldn't have yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. in 2023, <laughs> unbelievable. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, I, I, I can't remember any games at United where he's looked like the player he did at Dortmund. Not, I can't remember a single one. Um, Samuel's memory for I was just about particular games is better than mine. So he might reel off a couple now. Borderline weird memories. Yeah. So if I had to ask you, right, what are Sancho's top three moments for Manchester United? Could you pull them out for that? Because I'll be impressed if you can. I'm thinking the Tottenham goal comes into my mind, but that was recently as last season. His, his, his top moment was the goal against Liverpool last season, but that was more for the the occasion and you know, I used to be massively under the cosh and mutiny in the air. You would have scored that though. We had plenty of time. In the box, it's only one of the loudest roars there's, there's been at Old Trafford for, for a goal. But you, the, the point in essence is right. Like, there was one spell of form he had under Rangnick where he did well, but the team weren't doing well. And it's, it's forgettable unless you cover United as, as minutely as we do. Um, you know, that's, that, that's always been at the back of my mind. But that is the problem like, in terms of truly good games. You you can count them on one hand and I'm struggling to think. I mean, even that Liverpool game when he scored, he pretty much faded afterwards and he did that again. Uh, I think it was the following week against Leicester, he scored the winning goal and then he, he just really didn't do much afterwards. And he was in, at the time you looked at it, he was scoring goals and he'd had a productive start to the season and um, he, he didn't get in the England squad and people were asking, well, raising the question, why, why not? He deserves it. But he overall in the matches he wasn't his performance level wasn't at it. And then when the season resumed at City, he got I mean he got caned by Paul Scholes for not tracking back, and the full-backs were really exposed that day. And that was partly because he abandoned uh, Malassia. I think he was playing on the left, and Anthony was playing on the right, and, and Malassia got absolutely toasted by, by Phil Foden that day. Brought off a half-time, didn't he? He did. And, and Sancho's, Sancho's season never really recovered. He was, he was poor in the week after that, I think, against Ammonia Nicosia when he cocked up and he was hooked at half-time. Um, and unfortunately, it was just a very sudden regression. And then he's away for three months. He comes back, does okay. But then it's underwhelming and it ends really badly with... With, with his performance in the FA Cup final where Ten Hag did, did snap at him um, because he was that poor and the whole scapegoated thing. I, I think there's probably a way from Sanchez's perspective, if he, if he was really uh, clever about it, he, I'm sure he could do an interview that would gain sympathy because there's no the, the sympathy for him at the moment is in short short supply. But I, sh I suspect there's a way that he could frame it that he has been scapegoated, but he has to, yeah, to pick up the phone and say, Morgan. It, well, <laughs> that, well there, there, there is there is, is that. that what you're going to say uh, you could you wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Uh, but to use that um, that that tabloid quote, he needs to lift the lid on his time at Manchester United. And when he does, it will be you know it will be fascinating. I'm sure if he does it. He's definitely been offered an interview on Piers Morgan. You think so. He's been in his DMs, hasn't 100%. he? 100%. Yeah. I mean, having said all that for this segment, before we move on, but we'll see, he's still only 23 years old. And it, look, it's clearly not worked out at Manchester United, but he can still have a fulfilling career elsewhere, can't he? Uh, potentially abroad, I'm thinking maybe back in return, back to Dortmund might uh, reignite something. Um, so we'll leave it there for part two. And we'll be back in a moment for part three. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, Tyro and Casemiro got injured for Brazil against Venezuela and the first game of the international break for Brazil. He came off with an ankle injury and then they played him again against Uruguay. Started him, he played the full game. Is that not just bonkers? Um, he's now been ruled out of Sheffield United. He's obviously suspended for Copenhagen in the Champions League on Tuesday. Um, but having said that, obviously it is still a massive blow to lose a player of Casemiro's quality, but it's not quite, this, quite the blow it would have been last season when he was taken along in, in the key player because he's been a bit disappointing this time around. Yeah, we've touched on this over the last couple of weeks, really. I, you know, very underwhelming so far. I mean, the, the injury situation does look bizarre, but I, I'm not sure United are in a position to criticise given how they've managed Lissandro Martinez's injury this year. Um, 
so yeah it does look strange um is his, his absence like you say is not as disastrous because frankly he has been really poor this season he's he's been a major major part of why they've been um a lot, a lot worse than last season and there is now an obvious replacement for him in the squad arguably too i mean i don't i don't i don't i think we're pretty clear now that scott mctominay's best position is for you were going to say me not a, a holding midfielder um but uh, Amrabat is clearly c can play that role. Um, maybe interpret it slightly different to Casemiro, but he is a combative holding midfielder, and I think he can slot in. And, and on current form, you probably won't notice that much that much difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, it probably sums up the way things are going for United with injuries that that it's happened. I'm sure they won't be particularly happy with Brazil over the way it's the way it's transpired. Um, so yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a strange one. But like I say, it's not. You're right in saying had this happened maybe not 12 months ago, because he was still just sort of easing his way into the team. But had this happened in March last year, say in the internationals, I think there would have been major concerns because he was, he was the linchpin of the team for a lot of last season. But that's, that's not been the case so far this year. In terms of the midfield for this weekend then, Samuel, um, I've not, I've had a digit plan on actually, I'll put your team in. So I, I know your midfield. It's different to mine and Tyrone's, I believe. I went with Amrabat, uh, Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandes in mine. Um, but whatever the midfield is, it's going to be really fascinating to see how they play without Casemiro in the team. And let's say a scenario that that midfield really impresses over the next few games. And we don't know how long Casemiro is going to be out for as well. It could be... And, and do you want to add that? No, because it's embargoed. Okay, excellent. <laughs> uh, by the time you've listened to this podcast, now you definitely wouldn't have heard actually if it's embargoed. But, I have to record two sections or something, one for pre-10.30, <laughs> one for post-10.30. Um, but the point is, it's going to be it's interesting because does he come back straight into that team? Like I said, last season he would have, but it's not a given this time around, is it? If this midfield really impresses without him. It ties completely right what he said and that he, I think you suggested that he should have been dropped against Brentford and you wouldn't have been the only punter out there uh, touting that. And the last time we saw him, he was hooked to half-time. Uh, to his credit, he, he supportively came back out for the second half, watched it from, from the dugouts. There was no there was no complaining, not heard any um, issues from him while he's been away on international duty. And that, that can always easily happen when a player goes away and they're speaking their, their mother tongue. They're, they're always more open. Um, that's, that's just the way it works. But there haven't been any complaints from him on that. And he's not, so there shouldn't be. He's been dreadful. He's been plodding through this season and... Unfortunately, the Casemiro we've seen this season, I think, is the player that a lot of us feared United would get in. Just someone who's a 30-year-old, won everything, off to the United retirement home to take a you know huge salary and just you know coast through and be more invested in playing for his country than his club. So I think in some ways it actually is more galling for United that they've got to that point now where he was so influential, haven't been so influential last season for them when... Without him, they, they wouldn't have qualified for the Champions League. I thought he was their player of the year uh, for, for, in, in Ten Hag's first season. So the drop-off has been quite alarming, but they have got a lot of options there. I mean, McTominay, it may feel harsh not to start him at Sheffield United, but if you are to be harsh and if you're also to be um, quite thorough as well, his impact was within eight minutes or whatever it was, and it was the Alamo it was just chucking whatever they could at Brentford and it came up trumps with his two goals but Mason Mount has been signed to play in central midfield and Rabat is is the specialist so I think he's a non-negotiable he starts even though he's not not impressed really in midfield or at left back and, and Mount did play in the last game on the right but Ten Hag I think he'll be although he can't quite express it because of what's going on in the background, but I suspect he is absolutely delighted that Anthony is available because Anthony is his man. And although Casemiro isn't, isn't, isn't available for this game, Ten Hag's men are. And I, I suppose that's the interesting thing about Casemiro and that I think Ty was talking about it on the podcast he did with you last week about Murta as football director, and he's not really taken ownership yet because... Most of the signings have been Ten Hag signings, very clearly. The one exception would be Casemiro, who, t who Murta put the leg work in uh, for months whilst Ten Hag wanted De Jong and they kept Casemiro nice on the off chance they went with him. So that, that, that reflects well on Murta, but for this weekend and certainly for the Copenhagen game, 
it's 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 Ten Hag players really. Um, even Maynou, he's come through the United uh, into the United first team on on Ten Hag's watch, and I think the dilemma really is that w- with the right right hand side, it's the toss of the coin. I mean, I've I've never really particularly taken to Anthony. I really think United made an error in signing him just because he's one paced, he's one dimensional, he's got one trick. Um, but he is he's a Ten Hag player, so I think that there's every chance that he'll he'll start in this game and, and Mount's been signed as central midfield and let's face it, Mount they tried him on the right against Brentford and he was he was dreadful. Um I was getting a bit of still stick off Neil Custis pre match because I said I actually thought he was all right against Galatasaray. But then during the game I think two of our colleagues I think it was Neil and it might have been Paul Hurst, I think they both one of them turned to me and one of them might turn to the other. And I think the question they both asked was, what does Mason Mount do? And it was one of those games where you wondered, what is he What is he doing? If you notice, sometimes, this happened a couple of times now, when he's been taking corners and they've just got progressively worse and he's been taken off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fernandez has pulled round. Yeah, it was yeah. within 20 minutes against third, Brentford that he was off. Yeah. Um, so, he, I mean, Mount needs to get going at, at some point. That is, that is serious investment. And I'd completely understand if Ten Hag put him in midfield because... That's that's what he's bought him for. So if you were to if we were to do a predicted lineup, it would probably be Amrabat and and Mount in midfield with Anthony on the right, Fernandez through the middle. I think we all expect Rashford to start on the left um, because Ten Hag has been very loyal to him and and, and Hoyland up front. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily go that way, but we don't. We, we it's just it's just our views on these uh, with these panel teams, but. As, They'd they'd have to play exceptionally well, I think, against Sheffield United and Copenhagen, win and win both games, of course, for Ten Hag to be absolutely convinced that that midfield is there to stay for the derby. Because I maintain it in terms of you know the loss that Casemiro was last season. He was also a loss in that first derby because the slow integration of Casemiro into that team, I, I maintain cost them because he was never going to start that game. He'd had one start and that was in the Europa League. They went with McTominay and Eriksson and City just rinsed them. Um, as, I, as I suppose most most would have seen coming, but they, they need they need a specialist into that game, a specialist defence midfield that is. And they've they've at least got the choice now of, of Amrabat or Casemiro. It would be a huge, huge call, wouldn't it? Not to play, not start Casemiro in the well, Manchester Derby. Available, it would, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. So in terms of the other team selection then, Tyrone, obviously Samuel said Rashford's going to start to banker really, isn't it? Uh, get, get your mortgage on that. Uh, we had to get a better reference in there for Samuel. Um, but I'll throw another name in for you. Uh, Harry Maguire in defence. Um, was good against Brentford. Uh, did, made the assist for McTominay's match-winning goal. I actually made the case from the start uh, against Galatasaray as well. Because Lindelof, he's had a bit of a drop-off. Uh, hasn't he really this season? He's been quite poor recently. Um, so would you start Maguire alongside Varane uh, for this game? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a lot between Maguire and Lindelof in terms of third, fourth choice. I think we've seen already in Ten Hag that they are pretty interchangeable in, in those areas. Lindelof finished last season as third choice. Maguire was, was third choice before that. Um, it, I would go with Maguire. I think he, you know, he played well enough um, against Brentford, played pretty well. Did perfectly okay on on international duty, um, so yeah, I think he deserves to to keep his place. I guess the only question is whether you know how, Ten Hag quite likes the the balance. Obviously, there's no left footer available to him, but whether he thinks that Lindelof is a better option alongside Varane for for playing on the left side of that defence, whether he'll see that as, as coming into it, I don't know. I mean, Maguire played on the left under Solskjaer and Ranić. I prefer him on the left. I think he's a better player on the left actually. Yeah, I I can't say I've. I don't. I just, I'm, not I'm, sure, I'm just. I'm not sure there's loads just in like, it. Ty's just said he played there under Solskjaer and Rangnick, and you then you say I prefer, I, I prefer him there on the he's left. He's played that season. He? he does play that's that for I, England. That's more we yeah, play. Yeah. yeah, I think he was always a left-sided centre back, and then I remember Rangnick played him on the right, and I think it was against Leicester when he'd been booed by England, and Rangnick played him on the right, and then said afterwards, "It's easier to build up." for a right footer on the right, which kind of makes perfect sense. And he actually played quite well that day. He did, yeah. I remember thinking, oh, this is like, it was, it asked, was that easy. If Ralph you, knew if you all asked along. him though, he, I think he'd say he prefers the left side. I think if you said that. Yeah. 
I'd be surprised if he said the right side. Yeah, yeah. I've always got that impression anyways. Yeah, well, like I say, he's, he's played, I, I, when they signed him in throughout Solskjaer's reign, I always thought, thought of him a left-sided centre-back. Um, but he's not played there as often. And there's been, you know, there's been a few occasions where he's been asked, where Ten Hag's been asked about him, and he often references him as being in competition with Varane, yeah. which suggests he sees him as a Varane understudy on the right. And if Varane's fit, Obviously, it's different because Martinez is out and you can't play Shaw there either. So you haven't got a left footer. So it's got to be one of Lindelof and Maguire and they're both right-footed. So I'm sure it's much of a muchness. Um, but certainly on, on form, um, I think Maguire deserves to keep his place. I think it would be pretty harsh to, to drop him and move Lindelof back in. We've got the Victor, Lock, Victor Lindelof circumstances to consider as well, don't we? With the attack yeah. in Brussels yeah, yeah. Uh, in the week, is absolutely terrible. He's not... Ten Hag said he came back. Was it yesterday or the day before? He, well, he trained yesterday, but he said after the game he, he didn't he sleep didn't at all, sleep. as as you'd understand, given um, how how horrific that was for all all the way to in in Brussels, and it, you know, it's it's just not it's the last thing you could ever imagine happening, and it was it was the sensible decision taken by UEFA to call that result as a final result because I think Lindelof conducts himself impeccably as the captain, saying that. This this game shouldn't be replayed. We can't qualify. Belgium have qualified. What's what's the sense of it? He, you know, nobody's head was in the right place. Um, for, would be in the right place for that game to be played, given what happened. And you know, I think Ten Hag actually what he said about Lindelof today was, you know, really, you know, it was quite warm words from from a manager who at times he he gives off a gruff exterior but clearly you know United have had a duty of care with Lindelof this week given what he's gone through and they've, they've shown that with him before um, he's had a uh, it almost gives portrays him as this very luckless person but of course he's, his his house was broken into that time and his, his his wife was having to reach the safe room with with the two kids uh, which I can't bear thinking about and he had that episode at Norwich which got a lot of um Attention, where he just had a, had a had a bit of a funny spell. So I forgot about that. Yeah, he's been at the club seven years now, which is quite remarkable, isn't it? You think about at it. Least, yeah, he's into his seventh year now. Yeah. Uh, about the football, then just the end of the podcast. Sheffield United probably don't have to say too much about the Blades uh, struggling at the moment, rooted to the bottom of the Premier League. Twenty-two goals conceded. Uh, Newcastle scored against them, um, but I'm just saying. I mean, the, the spaces on the pitch that day were just absolutely unbelievable. They're clearly a very pro opposition. The golfing quality between the three sides who came up and the rest of the Premier League is, is stark this year. So United, I said to the side before we came on, United should be winning this comfortably. They keep having these unconvincing performances, but this is a real opportunity to still comfortably win, get a few goals, get Rashford amongst the goals again, and really build some confidence, isn't it? It is. But sounds it, a, it sounds very simple. It, 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 it sounds extremely simple. Uh, it, I'd say that's Bramall Lane's probably one of the most atmospheric grounds in the top flight, and the kickoff time will certainly amplify the atmosphere as well. Where it's at eight pm, I think it was due to be on the Sunday, but then it was it was switched uh, because of because of United's Champions League commitments. But going back to that behind closed doors era, I mean, there were two teams who I felt certainly going to the games who really lost out on having supporters present. One was Liverpool because it seemed like every team who hadn't won at Anfield in decades won at Anfield. And the other one was Sheffield United who got promoted in 2019, had a brilliant first season. They were brilliantly backed at Bramall Lane. Without it, they were, they were easy to, to play against and, and they, they were relegated quite early on this season. They were, um, they were doomed quite early on it felt like but that season they still somehow beat United at Old Trafford in one of those strange results that seemed to occur uh, on a monthly if not a weekly basis and when United went there four years ago it was a it was a surreal game United played well for seven minutes but they just happened to score three goals in those seven minutes to go from 2-0 down to 3-2 up and in the end it, it finished 3-3 and you didn't quite know how to, whether to make head or tail of that game. But although Sheffield United have changed since then, and, and Ten Hag cited this today, they have had two results this season where although they've lost against Tottenham and City, they've lost narrowly. I mean, the City game, I think, was it an 88th minute winner for City against Tottenham? They went, they went beyond the 90th minute 1-0 up, but Spurs got two goals in, in added time. Um, because obviously there's a lot of stoppage time that's played these days due to accusations of time wasting, which Paul Heggenbottom, the 
Sheffield United's manager wasn't happy about. It's pretty remarkable he's still in a job, given that I think everybody assumes he's going to get the sack at some stage sooner or later, um, particularly after the 8-0 thumping they took off Newcastle. So, although United, I completely agree, they should be winning this game, I will be pleasantly surprised if they do win it well and win it easily because, the, the, you know... the the occasion lends itself for Sheffield United to make a contest of it, at the very minimum, anyway. Here's a stat for you. I just had a look up from a lunch piece earlier this week of my United only scored more than two goals in an away league fixture once last season. Forest? Manchester City. Talking about Buffalo. A league, league fixture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, you're they making, won you're making this down myself there. No, they won 2-0 at Forest, but they won 3-0 there in the League yeah. Cup semi-final. So the, the, I mean, obviously 6-3. Scored two at Leeds. More than two. More than two. More than two. More than two once. Got you. Yeah. Which yeah, is, yeah. It's, it's, it's so in poor. The, in that, the game, they yeah. conceded six in. Exactly. And you think the talent, the attack and talent they've got. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's dismal, the, the away record. Yeah, Samuel, just the end, and Samuel mentioned, obviously, Paul Heckenbottom's continued. You speculated, Tyrone, that he might have been sacked when we won the last podcast. That probably helps United, doesn't it? Because if they had yeah. a new manager bounce, it's going to be conducive to an upset. Yeah, definitely. Especially when the word, you know, the, the speculation seems to be that Chris Wilder lurking in the shadows. lurking, suddenly going to games and potential potential um, homecoming and, and returning. And I'm sure that would get the crowd going. So, you know, Paul Heckenbaum is, uh, you know, I mean, he did phenomenally well to get that team promoted in pretty dire circumstances, given their financial issues. They sold the best players in the summer. They sold the best midfielder to Burnley. They sold their best striker to Marseille. They've not really adequately replaced them. Um, you know, they look certainties for relegation. They look pretty... They, they, I was going to say look a soft touch. I mean, the way they're playing against Newcastle, you have to say they were a soft touch. But they obviously, like Samuel referenced, they they dug in well and against Tottenham and City. I think they were battered in both of those games. But they showed a lot of, a lot of fight, I guess, to keep the score down. I mean, I don't think City took the lead until after the hour mark at least and obviously Tottenham's two goals were after the 97th minute or something like that I think so um so they've, they've shown they can fight but since that Newcastle game they've they've lost pretty easily lost 3-1 at Fulham um I think Fulham have been quite poor as Fulham well as yeah, as well. yeah so that should be another result that's an alarm bells ringing I mean not winning is just not an option for for United they they have to win and like you said really they should win looking reasonable doing so but um yeah it's not it's it, it is as samuel mentioned it's a tricky kickoff time and if the you know if the weather's like it is today then it's going to be pretty you know it's going to be a dog of a game isn't it so um what's what's the walking song that the, their fans chant? greasy chip bus, greasy chip bus yeah do you, give you fill a, up my senses i was going to say do you want to give her a rendition i, I, I'll I don't know that i think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for your time then lads Thank you. Thank Please. you, Stephen. And thank you very much to the listeners as usual. Uh, some plugs, head across to TikTok, everyone's favourite platform. We're not just doing dance videos. There is some relevant United content over there. Uh, Twitter, etc. Uh, head across to the website and YouTube. But we're ticking across nicely with subscribers. We'll be back on Monday to review the Sheffield United game. And then on Friday uh, for a Manchester Derby special. So uh, look out for that, which should be good. Have a great weekend and take care.